Hi there, and welcome to the podcast, Life as a, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. As many of us race towards adopting new modes of thought concerning environmentally based habits and routines, we are also being presented with more and more choices in the form of products and services from similarly minded businesses. Such new options, more times than not, still allow for the preservation of our overall lifestyle, albeit in ways that are more ecologically friendly and responsible. All of this reflects this ideology that for the sake of creating a sustainably minded future, we need to rethink our current ways of life and living. Are you in need of clarification? Well, how about an example to drive these thoughts home? You're in luck. I do have a guest today who has designed from scratch an entirely new and climate tech friendly product to replace and majorly improve an existing mode of transportation and form of leisure many of us have experiences with. Tom Ward is the co-founder and CEO of Epoch Boats, a climate tech company that is building a new generation of recreational boats. These vessels, I might add, are not equipped with your standard hull and outboard gas-guzzling features you may be familiar with. Tom and the Epoch team are developing battery electric hydrofoil boats with bi-directional charging capability in an effort to convert boating from being an outside source of pollution to a net positive for the environment. As a lifelong boater, the need for conservation and sustainability has always resonated with Tom. Before all of this, however, Tom had work experiences in the R&D department of medical device company, as well as within the OEM electronics industry, developing products for companies like Coca-Cola, before landing a new product development role with a major marine equipment manufacturer in 2015. His industry experience included roles ranging from senior director of engineering to GM, and he has built teams from zero and led organizations with more than 100 team members. Tom and his teams have designed, developed, patented, and commercialized multiple products, taking them from the whiteboard to scaled production. The results of said activities represented the realization of several hundred million dollars in new revenue for the firms he's worked for. Returning to the present and acknowledging his several years in the marine industry, Tom fully grasped the environmental impact of boating and saw a huge opportunity to flip the script. His passion for boating, combined with a mission to positively impact our climate, led to the launch of Epoch Boats. With all that noted, Tom, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the show. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, Christopher. Thank you for that kind introduction, and I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Yeah, likewise, likewise. When we first sort of began our communication back and forth and uh, was looking into your company and what you're doing, yeah, it just it was fascinating right out of the, the gate. And we can, I can see on the video portion of uh, this, you can see a poster in the background of the actual boat with the hydrofoil in behind. Yeah, it just, it caught my attention right away. So I'm really, really keen to, to hear all about it today. So why don't we get started? The first segment is something called Coloring Wikipedia. And as my listeners know, this is a segment where I just basically read off a definition of what the guest does. 
I like to do it for a couple of reasons. I think one, it brings everybody up to speed on what it is the guest does. And also two, it's a nice launching pad into the conversation whereby we can explore what's covered in the definition and sometimes just what's missing or underrepresented. So yeah, let me read off what I have down for you, which is ecopreneur. And perhaps after listening to it, you know, you can think about it within the context of what you do at uh, Epoch and uh, comment from there. Sound good? Great. All right. Here we go. Ecopreneur. Ecopreneurs are entrepreneurs whose business efforts are not only driven by profit, but also by a concern for the environment. Ecopreneurship, also known as environmental entrepreneurship and eco-capitalism, is becoming more widespread as a new market-based approach to identifying opportunities for improving environmental quality and capitalizing upon them in the private sector for profit. So it was fairly tight definition, but there's a lot jammed in there. First thoughts, what do you think, Don? I think it is a, well, first of all, it's a term that I, I hadn't really ever associated with before this. So thank you for bringing it to my attention. But it really does get to the heart of what we are trying to do at Epoch. So almost a decade ago, Ben Goldhirsch, the founder of Good Magazine, coined this concept of the villain test. And for anyone listening, the, the basic premise of the villain test is there's two parts to setting up a product. Part one is you think of a classic villain like um, La Chifra from James Bond or, or Gru from Minions or something, someone who's amoral and they just care about, I want the best of the best. And you design a product for them. And that, if your product passes that, that is the first part. And then the second part is, does this product do good, particularly in an environmental aspect? And if you get both of those, you pass the villain test. And that's a product that lives in a really interesting opportunity space because people will buy it just because it passes the first part. It's that good. You don't have to rely on people who are just environmentally conscious. And then, you know, secondary to that, it does do good for the environment. So I think, I think our kind of alignment around the villain test really ties into this concept of ecopreneur and eco-capitalism where you know, we, we are capitalists, right? We're, we started a business to make money. Yeah. Um, and, but at the same time, we, we do want to do it in the right way. And we, we want to do it in a conscious way. One other, I think, really interesting individual who I've been kind of following is Chris Saka, formerly of Lowercase Capital. About a year ago, he launched a environmentally focused fund called Lower Carbon Capital. And when he launched it, I was reading an article about it, and he kind of had this quote that said, hey, you know, when we looked at our LPs for this venture capital fund, we got a lot of sustainability interest, and we also got a lot of interest from people who don't care about the environment at all, and they just want capital returns. And he said that as they went and decided who their LPs were going to be, because they were oversubscribed, he purposely got some of those pure capitalist, you know, finance-focused individuals, because that's going to make you know, that's going to make the fund better. That's going to make the eco-conscious companies in their portfolio better because, you know, we really have to pass that first part. And if I can add one more thing to it, I think eventually the concept of ecopreneur, eco-capitalism is going to go away and it's just going to be capitalism. We, we look at this and, and ultimately we see things that are less extractive on the environment as fundamentally more cost-effective over the long term. Yeah. And we don't necessarily see that today, right? You know, you hear terms like the green premium. Often what's driving that, that kind of differential in cost is just because 
we haven't set up the supply chain. We haven't set up the manufacturing methods. And um, just out of interest the other day, I was idly pricing out Ford F-150s. And I, I went and I I did a Ford F-150 Lightning, you know, the brand new package. Mm-hmm. And I tried to put together like a V8 version that had all the same options. And the price difference was about $10,000, which mm-hmm. is about 10% of the cost of the truck. And the EV being $10,000 more expensive. So I, I thought about that for a while. And then I did some more research and, you know, there's no real F-150 Lightnings on the market yet, right? Ford hasn't really manufactured them. But for context, we manufactured about 600,000 EVs in the U.S. last year, or we registered them and sold them. And we did about 15 million internal combustion engine vehicles. So when you look at those economies of scale and you say that there's only a 10% differential today, very quickly, we're going to be at the point where an EV is less expensive than an internal combustion engine car just on purchase price and cost of manufacture. And then when we think longer term of less maintenance and no oil changes and not have to pay fuel, that less extractive solution is just a better overall investment. And you know, in the next decade, we're really going to see that happen on an industrial scale as you know, eco-friendly and environmentally conscious startups and legacy companies transition and, and really see this come into force. So it's a, it's a pretty exciting time to uh, be a, an eco-capitalist. No doubt, no doubt. And to be honest, when I was drawing up this outline, you know, and featuring your company, I was I was kind of back and forth on that point, whether to put that you down as a straight up entrepreneur or to add this element in. You know, the more I thought about it, you're right. We're not there yet in terms of the markets, in terms of even acceptance of some of these products, but it is. It, we, are, we are shifting towards that. And I thought, well, it, it might be worth putting it in there just to simply have the discussion to, to create some additional discourse on the topic, because I think that's the stage we're still at, right? I mean, it's all about adopting this, uh, you know, allowing people to think about it constructively and see how it could fit within lifestyles and so on and so forth. So yeah, I think we're, we're in that stage. We are moving closer towards it. And you're right. I mean, that Ford F-150 example you know, really drives it all home statistics like that we aren't that far off really you know so that's certainly an encouraging point but returning i guess to the definition was there anything that you felt was missing or even underrepresented if you can recall i think one thing i would add to it is as anybody in any role whether you're a startup founder or somebody working at a corporation or working in government i would add to it that everybody can be an eco employee we don't need to think about it just in terms of entrepreneurs or eco-capitalists, but I would say every job is a climate job. And you know, when I think about that, I have a lot of experience working in scale manufacturing, right? And we would have we would have fixed costs associated with it, and we'd have variable overheads, which might be somebody's putting packing tape on a box, right? And they have a choice. We might put in the bill of materials that there's a 18 inches of packaging tape, but maybe they could do just as good a job with. 14 inches, right? And, you know, everybody has an opportunity, no no matter who you are, if you're the CEO or the janitor or a truck driver, you can choose to leave your truck idling when you, you know, run into the rest stop, or you can, you know, turn it off. And basically, everybody has this opportunity to make small impacts, and they will accumulate over time, and they will help. And, you know, it'll, it'll change mindsets. And, Companies and governments are going to do this, right? We have no choice. It's it's coming. We're, we're starting to see climate impacts. 
the economists are looking at it. They have projections for how it's going to impact economies at a global scale. That's all going to happen. And arguably, those are going to be bigger and more, more you know, uh, efficient impacts than what an individual can have. But it's still important for individuals to have that level. So th that's that's the one thing I would add to it is, is we should, I, I don't know if it would be eco-employee or, or we kind of reframe it a little bit, but I think everybody has more of an impact than they might realize. And it just takes a little bit of thought and creativity, which isn't always easy to find when you're on the, you know, working 40 plus hours a week. But if you can find some time to to do that, then I think there's great opportunities for, uh, you know, a lot of dominoes to stack together and have a big end result. Well, returning back to Epoch and and the boats that you're you know creating, maybe we could uh, we could learn a little bit more about that. Like, where are you at in the stage of development? I mean, do you have a boat available right now, or is it launching soon? Maybe you'd bring us up to speed on that. We are we're launching soon, so we're we're still in prototype phase. Okay, we are driving towards production as fast as we can. Hopefully, in the next three months, you know, we're based out of Pennsylvania, so. Uh, winter's going to come, fall and winter are going to come and people won't be boating here, but obviously in other parts of the U.S. boating happens year round. So if we, if we get pushed out a little bit, we will be able to serve those markets. Right now is kind of the most fun part of it because we're actually on the water tweaking stuff and oh, nice. modifying the designs day in and day out. And, um, you know, kind of springtime into early summer in the Northeast mid-Atlantic is a, just a great time to be out there. We're not in the sweltering heat yet. And the results we're getting are, are just phenomenal. It's a, it's a really fun product. So you mentioned in the intro, we're, we're building battery electric hydrofoil enabled boats. And the hydrofoil system is really our secret sauce here. It's the enabling technology to electrify a small craft. And the reason for that is the way it works is it, as the boat, you know, as, as we get thrust out of the electric motor, and it propels the boat and the boat gets increased speed, it generates lift on that foil wing, just like an airplane wing, just mm -hmm. like a Boeing 737. Mm -hmm. um, and the difference is instead of going to 30,000 feet, we raise the boat about 12 to 15 inches and it gets the entire hull out of the water. One of the things I like to, to ask people to envision is, imagine you're running a 40 meter sprint down a track. And now imagine you go out you know, waist deep in the surf and you try to run that same 40 meter sprint. You're going to go a lot slower. Your legs aren't going to, you know, it's right. it's uh, the density of water just really creates all this drag. And that's what our hydrofoil system does is it lifts most of the hull out of the water. So we get a significant reduction in drag and that lets the boat go faster and mm -hmm. it lets it go much, much longer in terms of range. And, you know, that's that's kind of the the initial part of it, which is, okay, now we've got for a given amount of power, we can get a 50% faster boat. That's pretty cool if you're a villain, right? Everybody yeah, wants to go fast. Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, everybody wants longer range too. Now for the eco side of that is because we have that longer range, we can put in fewer batteries, which helps keep the boat lighter. We are less taxing on the battery system. So there's less maintenance events. We're not going to burn out motors as fast. And by doing all that and going to electrification, we can also take out huge amounts of pollution tied to boating. One of the things in the U.S. particularly, and, and this kind of spans globally, because for these types of boats, the U.S. tends to be a leader in, in setting the market and, and everybody else just kind of follows it because of economies of scale. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. has kind of 
given the boating industry a pass on environmental regulations. Not to say that there aren't any, but they're certainly not as stringent as what we see on road. And so the industry actually emits as much non-CO2 emissions as about 600 million cars every year. Wow. That's that's no joke. Yeah. No, it's a lot. It's yeah. it's impactful. So, you know, we can we can with technology available today, we can target about 70% of the boating population with their use cases and flip them over to electric with an epoch style boat. And those people wouldn't really know the difference aside from they'd no longer be worrying if their boat won't turn on when they spin the key because of bad fuel or you know, a gummed up carburetor or something like that. So we're, uh, you know, we're pretty excited about it, but there, there is, um, you know, there's going to be some friction. People in the boating industry tend to, you know, be a little bit traditionalist, but what we've seen is, is once the technology is proven, the industry will flip pretty quickly. People, people get it. Yeah. And it kind of returns to the point we were speaking about earlier. I mean, I think it's just going to reach that point where there's just that acceptance of like, this is the right way forward. And if you're not aligned with it, you're going to be the outlier. You're going to be the one that's not playing, you know, fairly not playing the right way. And I think we're seeing this a little bit right now in a lot of different areas, like almost shaming in a sense that you're not being aware of your impact on the environment, well, it's, it's positioning you in, in a certain light that's maybe not the most flattering, to be quite honest. So I, I imagine those kind of social forces as well, at some point are going to come into play, you know, hopefully your epoch boats are, are well positioned to, uh, you know, take advantage of that when that uh, fully, you know, sort of realizes itself. So hmm, that's uh, quite interesting. What I would like to do actually right now is just transfer into a new segment here, a Q&A discovery, much like what we're doing right now, just some back and forth. And I do have a few more questions lined up here for you. And this is returning to you personally, I suppose, and some of the things I read off the top about you. One being that you had years and years of experience working for fairly large corporations, you know, R&D departments, running teams, creating revenue for these companies. And then you went off on your own and launched Epoch. And what I'd like to know is that shift in mindset. How did that take shape? Was it something that had always been inside that you wanted to, to launch your own company? Or was there a particular moment that just sort of hit you or struck you in a funny way? And like, no, this is what I want to do. I'd love to hear your insights on that. I think it's been in there my entire life. And, you know, it's kind of the pendulum has swung depending on the stage of my life. So for reference, my, my father has always been a small business owner. And he, you know, supporting that small business work 60, 80 hour weeks, my entire life. So I kind of saw that and at times said, you know, that's crazy. You're, you should be working like 40 hours and just be home with your family and stuff. And then at other times you look at it and say, okay, it's, it's his passion. It's what he wants to do. So there's probably, you know, my, my teenage rebellious years didn't quash all that, you know, sentimentality related to it. Yeah. Um, and I actually, you know, I try to, to, start something in college with some some friends and roommates and everything which is the worst thing you can do you should never you know start a business with your friends so that that petered out it was, there was a lot of reasons behind that um and then I, I actually tried back in 2014 to start another business with colleagues this time and that one similarly came down to team right it was it was me and a bunch of engineers we were all technical we built some really cool stuff Mm-hmm. But we had no ideas about marketing. We had no ideas about sales or, or any of the other behind the scenes things. So it's always been there. But I've also been fortunate in that all of these roles that I've worked in corporate America 
have been R&D and new product development facing. So there's always there's always been a lot of ability for me to be entrepreneurial in my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things with my last two com- or my my prior two companies, they were both at the time owned by private equity groups that were uh, there's kind of two flavors of private equity. There's the hack hack job people who come in and cut up the company and sell off all the assets and, and walk away. And then there's a growth stage private equity. And sometimes you'll have a firm that does both. They'll selectively pick which businesses are going to be which. I was fortunate in that the two companies I worked at that were in under private equity were both growth stage private equity groups. Mm-hmm. And they basically said, listen, if you can put out new products and you can you know, show revenue and you can hit your metrics and everything, we will finance every new product you want to do. If you can give us a business case wow. and you keep hitting all your numbers, we will keep doing it. And in in a lot of respects, it, it wasn't all that different than what we're doing now at Epoch, talking to venture capitalists and angel groups and everything. The biggest difference is how the terminology works out and you know a little bit of alignment between the people who cut the checks at the end of the day. So I've had to have some re-education myself on how I present certain things for the uh the startup ecosystem versus the corporate America ecosystem. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, it worked very similarly, right? We would have some space where we needed to build it. We'd have to get a team together. We'd have to have financial plans and you know risk analysis and say, here's the CapEx that we need. Here's the salary expense we're going to spend. And here's our five-year revenue rates and, and everything we're going to do around it. So for much of my career, that really went a long way in, in satisfying my entrepreneurial cravings. Right, right. You can see that, yeah. And, and at my last job, I even got an opportunity to open my own site totally from scratch where the headquarters was in a different state. And I said, listen, I, I can't move. I have, you know, my wife is employed here. My two children are in school. My family lives close, like Pennsylvania is where I'm based. And ultimately they said, okay, well, just go find a building, build your team there in Pennsylvania and start putting out products. And I got to do that. Yeah. So, um, you know, the first night where I got the keys to the building after going through all the commercial real estate stuff, I'm in the building by myself. I had pulled a table out of my garage and I was sitting there with my work laptop, basically in the dark. And, um, you know, ultimately grew the team there, hired everybody mentored and trained the staff. We started launching tons of products out of the site and it was a really great experience. And I think kind of what flipped the switch for me and, and pushed me into Epoch was, was a twofold thing. One was at the end of that experience where I was working really long hours, like my dad did, I sat there and said, I'm, I basically just did a startup yeah. in the context of this larger company. I'm working insane hours you know, I've got job st- security and stability. The pay's good and all that, but but if I'm going to do it, I should I should just do it, right? I should just yeah. go in. And then the other part is, while the, all of these companies had sustainability goals and cared about ESG and everything, ultimately they were really locked into polluting techniques and industry. And and there's difficult economic aspects. Talking going back to e- eco capitalism, where if we designed something 10 years ago and we paid for all the tooling and now every piece we sell is just you know printing money, right? We're not worried about ROI anymore because mm-hmm. the ROI is already paid for. Yeah. Um, it can make it really hard to develop a business case to make the product more energy efficient or better for the environment. And 
if you start with a true blank slate of a brand new company that has no baggage and no skeletons, right, right. then you can really be impactful. And I, I think those two combinations of that kind of entrepreneurial experience plus wanting to have that ability to really make a big impact is what drove me to, to ultimately start Epoch. Hmm. That's a really unique story. I mean, that's one that what truthfully I wasn't expecting. And it's not one that I would say you hear all the time, you know, and as far as almost being guided along in that process of, you know, having that, that degree of independence, as you were just explaining, you know, what, what a valuable experience that must've been in terms of taking on all these lessons getting to play with them, you know, put ideas out into the market, see how things react and just building your own skill set along the way. It must've been, you know, quite a valuable experience as far as what you're doing right now and, and allowing you to have much more you know, deeper levels of analysis and understandings of what market needs and wants are for certain things. And then also just some of the theoretical side of things as well, what works, what doesn't work, how things fit into your own personality, so on and so forth. Hmm, must've been a really valuable experience. It really was. And I think, I think there's kind of, there's two schools of thought on kind of startup entrepreneurship, right? One is start right out of college or drop out of college and you're going to make a lot of mistakes, but you're young and you'll, you'll kind of figure it out and you'll be the expert by the time you're like 27 or something. Right. And then the other is go learn on somebody else's time, be secure, get a paycheck. And then when you've developed the skills, mm -hmm. you can, you can go do it. And actually I, I read a statistic. It's been a while, so I might botch it a little bit, but most successful entrepreneurs are in their mid forties when they start their companies. Mm. And I think that really plays a lot into that, that second aspect of they went in, you know, if they went to college from 22 until 45, they worked for somebody else. They learned all the, or most of the different aspects. They, they build a network and, and that is so impactful when you go start a, a startup. So I, I kind of did the the middle way, right? I, I wasn't, I'm not quite 45 yet, but I, I definitely got to, you know, go learn on somebody else's time and, you know, provide a lot of value for them. And, and I got a lot of value in terms of education and, and experience in return. So it, it definitely was great. I'm super happy with where my career has been and uh, very excited on where it's going. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, here's a kind of a nice question to, to follow up on all of this. You know, as, as far as during that time when you were working for companies and launching products, I'd be curious to know what that process was like from taking an idea, a concept, you know, on a whiteboard and then taking it to market. You know, what, what, what is that like? Maybe you could sort of shed some light on that. And then I do have a follow up here on this as well, which would be what is that process, that same process like when it's your own company? Is there a distinction? And what, what is that? I would say the most important factor in getting a product to market is being disciplined. And the reason is because, you know, when you start at the whiteboard, you can go in a million different directions and there's so many paths that can go down. And, you know, some of them you just know are going to be wrong <laughs> when in early brainstorming sessions and stuff like that. So there are processes. Um, the one that I really like is called phase gate. And Kind of the earliest specific use of it that I know about was when the Apollo program was happening at NASA. They they implemented PhaseGate back in the 60s, and, and that's how we got to the moon. And I won't bore everyone listening with all the details. It's, it's pretty Googleable. You can go research it. But basically, it's a really structured way of identifying the critical aspects of any kind of project or product, 
in phases. So phase one, and usually there's six right. or seven phases. And at the end of each phase, you you look back and you say, did we meet our assumptions? And were our assumptions proven true or false? And if they're proven true, that's really good. And then you look forward and say, what are our assumptions for the next phase? And, and how can we test those assumptions and prove them out? If you get to that gate and you say your assumptions were false, then you need to look and say, should we kill this project and go to go back and go down a different path? Ultimately, I've early in my career, I didn't know what phase gate was. We kind of I got into some projects where we went down really bad paths and they failed. And over the years, you know, I learned it from pretty much every company I worked at had some form of it that was either implemented, uh, usually implemented not great. <laughs> and it's tricky because when you're starting a new product, you do need to have creativity, right? And you do need to have flexibility. And then if you have this system that's codified, sometimes people get really stuck where they're like, well, I need to be creative and flexible, but then there's this really rigid and structured mm -hmm. and disciplined system. Stifled almost, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and how do, I, how do I work within these two constructs? And um, I, over the years for my teams, I worked really hard to implement PhaseGate in a really flexible manner so that we can be disciplined where it really matters, but not get bogged down. And, and that has been the, the critical piece of it. And beyond that, the most important thing is just talking to customers. I mean, product market fit is where it's all, where it always is. And I, I always say, take the most embarrassing thing you can and go talk to somebody. And, you know, for me, that is literally at times like some pieces of paper. I won't even call it origami because that would be insulting to origami, but some pieces of paper that I cut up and taped together and said, hey, like, this is how big it's going to be. And this door is going to open and, you know, things are going to happen and, it's embarrassing, but you get so much feedback from that, right? A lot of people, like, you'll sit there or I'll sit there in my office and dream something up for weeks on end, and I have a perfect vision in my head. But to translate that vision to someone else is really hard. And to make it a final product is 100 times harder. But to make it, you know, some cardboard or a piece of paper or nowadays with 3D printing and rapid prototyping, you can get something that really looks like what it ultimately will be quickly and cost-effectively. And and that I find to be really impactful. Um, I will preempt your second question a little bit. One of the major differences is when you're working for a large hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue or billions of dollars in revenue per year company that's been around for 50 or 60 years, that company has a reputation. And so you can't, I mean, I couldn't go to Coca-Cola with some piece of paper that I chopped up and taped together. <laughs> That wouldn't fly, right? right so, right, right. so inherently, we had to spend a enough time and enough resource to get our block models and early prototypes up to a customer presentable level. Yeah. Whereas in startup life, nobody has expectations, right? They're like, "Oh, you've been doing this for two months. Yeah, piece of paper, whatever. That's fine." And and yeah. you're really able to rapidly get better feedback and. And that kind of happens across the board, which I think is a huge advantage. And, you know, there's obviously other things around institutional inertia, like the ROI and the tooling I mentioned before, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. just that ability to go out there and be embarrassed is a yeah. huge thing in terms of being able to step on the pedal and, and really, you know, yeah, hit the speed. accelerator. I think speed is what really stands out. I mean, just yeah, getting out there immediately and getting feedback and right away. Whereas like you just said, for some of these other companies, you need models and it takes this amount of time. You need 
grants of approval for this action, for that action, so on and so forth. It just slows it all down. Inertia is probably the right word that you use to describe it all. Whereas, yeah, startup land, it, it's quick. You, you can get that feedback almost instantaneously. It depends on you more or less, right? Yep, absolutely. Mm. Mm. Okay, no, that's really insightful. Uh, some things that probably people wouldn't necessarily you know, think of off the top of their heads when comparing those processes. And also, too, I think that was just really interesting about uh, the process that is typically used um, for whiteboarding. I mean, for people who don't have that type of experience, but might have some of those ideas themselves down the line. Yeah, I think that does uh, uh, give them sort of a launching pad to kind of explore things a little bit further for themselves. So thank you for sharing that. Returning to your boats, basically, and this, this concept of climate, sustainability, there's one term that's been circulating now in the last several years, I suppose, something called circular economies. And I'm sure you're quite familiar with this, but I'd love to know how the, the EPOC model or business model in essence fits into all of that. Maybe could you comment on that a little bit? Absolutely. And I love this question because it's a hard question for boats. It is a um, tough one. Yeah. That's why I'm really quite interested to hear. I would not put you on the spot too much, but I think it's, it's, it's just a fascinating one to say the least. Yeah, no, I, I love it. I, and I do, I do think about it quite a bit, how we can fit into circular economy. And, and you know, going back to the, the uh, painting with Wikipedia, ecopreneur and, and climate-friendly, being, being less extractive and being able to engage in the circular economy is a huge aspect of that. So just for historical background, you pretty much have two flavors of recreational boat. You either have a fiberglass constructed boat, which is fiberglass with, impregnated with resin, and that's kind of like your typical Boston whaler, if, if people are familiar with that. And then you have an aluminum constructed hull, which is usually, you know, small, small boats for freshwater lakes. Traditional fiberglass impregnated boats are almost unrecyclable. <laughs> Pretty much at end of life, all you can do is, is chop them up and put them in a landfill. Mm. There, I, I do know of one one of the biggest boat builders in the world is launching a new fiberglass technology that they expect to be recyclable. Mm -hmm. So that is a, a great advancement on their part. I don't know the full details of where it is in terms of commercialization yet or what recyclable really means in that context, because there are, there's a spectrum of recyclability. Aluminum boats are aluminum, right? So if you can strip the paint and you can pull out all the electronics and the foam core, You've just got aluminum sheet left, and then you can go melt that down and, and repurpose it. So they kind of lend themselves to recyclability a little bit better than the fiberglass boats in that respect. And then the other aspect of it comes down to longevity. Mm -hmm. So fiberglass boats traditionally would have some type of wood framing and construction in them. And when that wood would inevitably get wet over time because of cracks in the fiberglass, it would, it would rot out from the inside. And now there's a situation where you can spend a lot of time and a lot of money replacing all that structure, wow. or you just scrap the hull. And that's usually was about a 20 year life cycle before modern day fiberglass construction doesn't typically use wood inside of it. So it tends to be not able to rot out. There is some lifespan to it, but I'm not sure that we completely understand what that is. It's, it's measured in decades. Okay. And for aluminum boats, you know, short of running them into rocks or anything, you can get 50 plus years that we know about and probably okay. even longer. So we are aluminum hull construction 100%. We will, we will not make a fiberglass boat. So that piece of it, there's opportunity for recycling, although our, obviously our hope is that it's better to not have to recycle and just have it be in right. use for as long as we possibly can. The next biggest piece of it 
from our perspective becomes the batteries. And this is the really interesting aspect of eco-capitalism and, and less, uh, less extractive technology. So I look at it and I always compare lithium batteries back to something like coal, right? A lot of people like to complain, oh, you have to mine lithium and it's a nasty, ugly mining process and all this happens. Well, mm. we do the same for coal and it, it is also nasty and it's done terrible things to the environment and communities where there are coal mines. And it's done good things too, from an economic perspective and giving people jobs and, and build up right. communities. But there's also been a lot of negative environmental impact. The difference we have is that when we mine that lithium and we extract it and put it in a battery, we now have what I would call a resource that has some level of permanence. Mm. We can recharge that battery thousands of times. It's going to have an effective lifespan of you know, 10 years, we'll call it, with current technology. When we take that coal and we go burn it and turn it into electricity, there's no permanence. Well, there is permanence and it's what we spew into the air. But aside from that, once we, once we use those you know, kilowatts, it's gone. And now we have to go mine more. So there's been a big question about how do you recycle these batteries? What happens at the end of that 10 years? And the great part is that that question is being answered. Like as we speak, there are scientists and companies that are doing amazing things with lithium battery recycling. With current technology, we can get about 95% of the active minerals and, and metals out of those batteries. Wow. And put them into new batteries. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. I'd never heard yeah. of that. Huh. Yep. So that, that part of it's really interesting. The other thing I've seen is that the anodes in these batteries, actually by using them in a normal EV setting, it molecularly changes the anodes such that if you can recycle that anode and reuse it, you get about 35% more life out of the next battery, out of the recycled battery. Get out of here. Yeah. So it's... um. I think there's really amazing opportunities there. And when you think about, we're going to go extract all this lithium, we're going to put it in batteries. Well, guess what? 10 years down the road, we're going to recycle those. And we're going to have better recycling processes. They're going to be less expensive. They're going to be less expensive than mining fresh. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're just going to be able to keep rolling that down. And, and when you work that out 50, 100 years, like what is technology going to look like then, right? I, I mean, I know we have a crystal ball section at some point here. The million but, dollar question right there. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that aspect of it is really exciting. I think the other thing that's really exciting, semi-related to circular economy is, and we haven't talked about this yet, is at Epoch, we have some proprietary technology around bi-directional charging. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea that you can have this battery pack in your boat and you can use it. Let's say utility power goes out. You can island your house from the grid. You can plug your boat in and now you can run your lights and run your laptop and you know, run stuff off the battery in the boat. That's kind of the, the tier one use of it to replace a localized generator. The, the tier two use that we're working on in the US, and it's a wildly complicated issue with 50 different states and different utility markets and everything. But the next usage is your house is plugged into the grid. The utilities are functioning normally, but we're going to use software to say, hey, it's like 1 p.m. in Arizona. It's 115 degrees outside. The air conditioner is running. Let's draw some power out of the boat and give that back to the grid. Hmm. And that helps, you know, by being able to use renewables. That helps by not having to turn on peaker plants, you know, if we have fossil fuel powered plants. And then, you know, it gets to be 10 p.m. at night in Arizona. And now 
the utilities are really not strained, we can flip that switch and we can recharge the battery and have it good for the next day. I bring this up because it's something we can do with the product right off the bat. Boats don't get a lot of use, right? Most people don't go on their boat every day like they might go in their car. So we can really schedule that and say, hey, you know, Monday through Friday, you can use your boat in this capacity. Mm. And if you live in Pennsylvania, like, like I do, not only Monday through Friday, but from, you know, October through March, you're never going to get on your boat. So now you've got six whole months where you can just do it and not even think about it. Mm. But then the second level is when we look at EV battery packs, usually when they hit about 80% of their capacity in terms of useful life, they get retired as EV battery packs. So if, if you have a Tesla or an Epoch boat, you would want to take those battery packs out and put fresh ones in. Well, in terms of circular economy, that doesn't mean we have to immediately take them to the recycling plant. We can actually take them and use them in that similar bi-directional energy situation. Because mm. if you're not worried about getting somewhere, 80% capacity is great for that. All right. So right. If, if we get seven or 10 years out of it in the boat or in your car, Now we can go get maybe another seven or so years out of it in terms of a grid support, you know, battery store, and then it can go be recycled and we'll get 95% of the metals out and we'll make Mm. a new battery with, with these conditioned anodes that get 35% more useful life. And there's just so many cool opportunities around it. So if you can't tell, part of the reason I liked your question about circular economy is because I've thought about it like an insane amount. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, I, I guess positioning your product in ways that can take advantage of some of those theories behind it and what you just explained gives it a whole different level of functionality that, quite frankly, you, you wouldn't associate with boating, with the industry, with you know that sort of, again, use the word capability. Yeah, that's really quite fascinating. It kind of returns to what you brought up you know, a few minutes ago, like 50 to 100 years down the line, where are we going to be at? I mean, I'd even challenge to say we're going to be at in a year or two from now because like ideas like this are just so radically different than the ways of life and living and the way we use and interact with products five ten years ago I mean, it's just so different and every year year on year you know ideas like this innovation like this is coming out that uh, is really challenging us to to rethink how we go about things how we can be more effective how more efficient in our use of products and services so no, thank you for sharing that. And I'm glad you uh, you were able to weave that in because I think that's a really important point. Absolutely. Maybe we could shift on over into a brand new segment here, something called a water cooler story segment. And here I just ask guests to indulge listeners with the story related to what they do. So I'd love to hear what you have for us today, Tom. So, um, you know, thinking about this, one of the, one of the things that came to mind in light of what we've, what we've all collectively been through in the last couple of years is, is just kind of burnout and, you know, when you've burnt the candle at both ends and you're just pushing it and you don't know where to go next. And I was actually thinking about back to earlier in my career, it was a 4th of July weekend. And um, it was a weird, weird year where 4th of July fell on a Wednesday. And my, my oldest son was one years old at the time. I was, you know, earlier in my career and I was working on some product at work and like woke up 4th of July morning. It was a company holiday. And, you know, I said, oh, my son's only one years old. He's fine. I'm going to go into work and I'm just going to go brute force this problem we've been on. Like, I just need to do it. Right. And that was a time in my corporate career where I was putting in just insane hours. And I went in, I worked on it. I came home in the early afternoon. We did a barbecue or whatever. And then like the next day was a normal work day again, just because I wear the holiday felt. And 
you know, I've been thinking about that in the, you know, the context of everybody needs to find a break and you need to find a break at the right time. But I've also been thinking about it in the context of having started the startup. A startup is basically two jobs oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and the hours are insane. But I think part of what brought it to mind is it's, it's almost like a different level of stress. Like if you're, if you're just stressed out and you're at work and you're burning the candle like that and you come home and you're mentally exhausted and physically exhausted. Whereas what I'm in now, I can go work like a 12 hour day. And at the end of it, I'm like, I still feel great. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm forcing myself to, to, you know, take time for me and be with my family because why well, have a family if you're not going to do that. But at the same time, it's, it hits very differently than, um, you know, working for someone else and being in corporate America. And it's actually kind of flipped the coin now where I'm like, do I want to go on vacation? (laughs) (laughs) There's there's a certain charge with it all, isn't there? Yeah. It's almost like a a different current running through you to use a metaphor there, perhaps. You know, I agree. I agree. Yeah. It must be a balancing act in that sense though. Like you said, trying to to keep it all aligned, you know, balancing out the personal and the professional. And yeah, because both demand, of course, you know, both demand a lot of time and, and rightfully so. But you're right with the startup. I mean, it, it almost is like another child in that sense, in terms of time, effort, and energy that it needs, you know, devotion towards. So I trust that you are finding that balance though now. It is even it, it's, it's hard. It's a pendulum for sure. But um, you know, my my I have two boys, they're eight and ten years old. So I told them, like, we're not doing camps this summer. You're gonna be sweeping the floors at Epoch, and I'll take you on boat rides every day to go do testing. So okay, that's a pretty yeah, good trade off then. <laughs> Um, I'm trying to trying to get them interested in, and actually this weekend. So today is for anyone listening. Today's a, a Monday. Yesterday, I spent about four hours working on on the prototype boats, and my ten year old son was there with me, and you know was handing me wrenches and multimeters and stuff like that. So that was a really All cool right. experience, you know, because not only to have him involved with it, but also just to teach him those kind of things, right? I mean. We don't, we don't live in a world anymore where you can go work on the Chevy in the driveway and, you know, teach your kid how to fix a carburetor because cars don't have carburetors, right? Cars are like right. advanced computers. So it's, it's been a nice experience. And, and that's another thing too, right? If you're in a corporate job, you can't necessarily bring a 10-year-old kid in and have them hand you a wrench. But, you know, at least for now, I've got that level of flexibility where we can do it. So it's, it's been fun, but it's definitely still a balancing act. Yeah, most definitely. Well, excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that. Why don't we shift on to another segment here, a crystal ball segment. You did bring it up earlier. And this one, as the name implies, we're looking towards the future, trends, predictions, so on and so forth. Now, in terms of, I guess, Epoch and what you're doing, now obviously, you, know, you have complete confidence in your product and plan, but I'd love to know about how it's been received in the industry, marine industry as a whole, when you've been out there speaking with people, you know, as you've spoken to earlier, you know, when you're prototyping, I'm sure you were out there getting feedback and, and gathering insights like what, what were people saying to, to what you're proposing? It's been really great. I mean, both from a partner perspective and from a, a end customer perspective, we, we launched. And if anyone goes on our website today, you'll see that we're really focused on this one style of boat called a skiff, which is focused on fishing. And we targeted those customers. And when we went into marketing launch, we got this huge influx of inbound leads and about a third of them were the customers we thought we were targeting. Mm. And then 
the the remainder were split up into into two other halves. So we had a third, a third, and a third. And they they just crossed this huge spectrum of you know people from young professionals who like to go fishing and do boating to retired senior citizens who said, hey, I've had a boat for the last 40 years and I'm so tired of this gas boat. I just want something electric that I can go out there and get where I need to go and have it be quiet and not deal with any of the hassle and pretty much everyone in between. So the, the customer piece of it has been great. I think people really get it. And then on the partner side, you know, component suppliers and boat dealers and other boat builders have reached out and said, hey, that's like, that's a pretty interesting concept. And, you know, there's been some talk of like, hey, you've got this hydrofoil technology that's your own proprietary patent pending system. Like maybe we can put that on our boat and mm. what would that look like? So I think I think people are really understanding. I think people are are ready for it. And to take the crystal ball a step further, we're going to hit a really interesting inflection point where we kind of flip from having gas stations and gas being readily available to having that not be. Mm. And I won't go so far as to predict when that's going to happen, but I think it's going to happen sooner than anybody expects. And it, it's going to be, it's going to be revolutionary, I guess is the best way to put it. It's going to have broad impacts, particularly in terms of equality. You know, people who have really high incomes are going to be able to go buy electric and have larger panels installed in their house and solar panels and better backups and all of that. And they're going to, you know, smoothly go through that transition. Thinking of like urban infrastructure, I lived in Philadelphia for five years. We have concepts in the U.S. of food deserts where there's no supermarkets for, yeah. you know, large, large areas of cities. And it's really hard for people that don't have automobiles to be able to go do grocery shopping and things of that nature. We're probably going to end up in this situation of a fossil fuel desert where gas stations are going to close down because they don't have the demand to support it or because they can't sustain their infrastructure. One of the local gas stations near me recently went through a total refit. So they dug up the underground storage tanks, which are these huge fiberglass tanks, and they had mm -hmm. to chop them up just like you would a fiberglass boat that went bad. <laughs> And um, I just happened to drive by it randomly a couple of times and it was took a couple of months for them to do this whole replacement. So I, I went around, I started talking to people about like, what is this? Like I, you know, I knew that they had storage tanks on site, but I never really kind of understood what that meant or what the implications were. And it turns out that pre COVID with the labor rates and the material costs we had at that time, the cost to replace a tank like that was approaching a million dollars. I don't know exactly what it costs today, but you have a million dollars in just CapEx at least that you have to pay to replace it and put a new one in. And then you have months and months of not being able to serve your customers and sell them gas. And it's something that larger conglomerate gas stations like Amico or something, they're going to be able to put that bill in the market where it makes sense. Yeah. But smaller mom and pop gas stations or marinas that serve gas, they're they're not going to be able to do that necessarily. No. No. And they're going to look at it from a business case and say, wow, like I just saw like 20 Epoch boats launch off the dock today. I know everything's going electric. Even if I could afford to spend a million dollars to replace my gas tank, should I? Or should I go spend 50K or 100K to put in upgraded electrical service? I think a lot of people in the industry kind of, they might not understand all the dynamics of that, but they understand that 
generally that's going to come and that it's coming quickly. Back to the EVs, there were 300,000 EVs registered in the US brand new in 2020, and there were 600,000 in 2021. So we doubled the we doubled the yearly sales of EVs in one year. Um, we'll see what it's going to be in 2022. So that's going to be the big driver that impacts the marine industry, right? We don't have the volume to mm-hmm. really enforce what happens with petroleum or electrification, but the the auto market is the the 800 pound gorilla there, and and we're just kind of tagging along, right? And um, yeah, I think a lot of our industry partners and other boat builders kind of see that they don't really know how to flip the switch on it yet, and so I think there's some interest in us where they're looking like, let's see what these guys are doing and how they're they're kind of navigating it. Mm. It's interesting you brought that up earlier, you know, when you were kind of putting things out to the market and trying to just get feedback. And quite frankly, I was expecting you to say something along along the lines of, you know, some of the younger generations were more interested in it, you know, maybe in their 30s, 40s, perhaps, with some disposable income, obviously. But what I wasn't expecting to hear were some of the older generations being interested in it. As you, you know, gave your reasons for it, you know, they just don't want to have to deal with the hassles for it and, you know, the troubles that a gas-powered engine provides, basically, where something electric is a lot more seamless, it's, it's simpler for them. But I just, I, I was returning to a point that you raised earlier where there are a lot of traditionalists within that industry uh, that I just expected you know, there to be a lot of resistance, not even like the sense of like, this would be a possibility. So, I think that kind of speaks volumes unto itself. And obviously time will tell on how far, you know, people are willing to go with that, but uh, that's certainly a, a positive sign I would think as well. Yeah. I honestly, we were expecting a fair bit more resistance too, mm-hmm. and, and kind of had that same assumption that, that you just mentioned that we're going to have this really targeted small niche, which is fine. You know, if you're a startup, you want to start in a niche and you want to serve them. Mm-hmm. We actually kind of have another problem now where it's like, We've got these kind of kind of somewhat equally distributed groups, and who do you choose? <laughs> you can't, yeah, we can't serve everyone all at no, once yet. No. Not Which you know, give us a couple years, it? but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, probably a good problem to be having, I'm assuming. But yeah, I must say, Tom, it's been a really interesting talk. I mean, we've blended in a, a lot of you know history of where things have been essentially within the marine industry. You know where things are going by way of what you're doing or the potential of epoch boats and also too i really appreciated and really uh got a lot from a lot of statistics and metaphors that you're able to to weave into all of this as well and really help crystallize some of the the assumptions that i had and then also challenge some of those assumptions also that okay well maybe i was off base here and this is a whole different avenue a whole different direction things could be going so yeah i really enjoyed all of it it's been uh yeah really enlightening conversation thanks so much Thank you as well. I really enjoyed the conversation too. Yeah. For those interested in learning more about Tom and his company, you can find him on his website, epochboats.com, or also on the following social platforms. He's on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And for reference, all of this information, including the links, will be included in the show notes. And if you like today's show, please be sure to share. I think it goes a long ways. You know, we learn a little bit more about one another, what we're doing. It lessens that divide. I think it promotes some empathy there. So please share, share away. And also to show further support, you can rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. And finally, head on over to YouTube. We recently launched a channel over there, Life As A, where you can check out the full video episodes. 
And the neat thing with that is off the top, there will be a slideshow of imagery associated with the talk. So you can get an idea for some of the things that we discussed today, perhaps. Get a look at uh, this Epoch, Skiff, and, and some of the other things going on with it. And finally, don't forget to tune in to the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.